0: President Trump calls on the private sector to step up against the global pandemic. And instead of what they have been manufacturing, to manufacture items that are in much need
1: across America.
2: The U.S. military is deploying resources to help with the coronavirus outbreak. But how much can they do?
1: The military as it is configured right now is not really configured to deal with infectious diseases.
3: Congress is moving fast on a trillion dollar shot in the arm to an ailing economy.
4: We need to not just chuck, you know, sort of money at the problem. We need to have a plan.
3: Joe Biden finds more distance in his Democratic delegate lead.
5: Well, the race is is all but over. And uh, in Florida, Biden won every county in the state. With
3: John Decker, Rachel Sutherland, and Chad Pergram, I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. The global coronavirus pandemic is altering the way many of us live. The Centers for Disease Control guidelines say we should stay at least six feet from each other, and that's if you're in public at all. Most American cities are under strict social distancing requirements. Bars and restaurants are closed, along with schools and shopping malls. It's natural to feel anxious, unsettled, as the number of coronavirus cases and related deaths rise both around the world and here in the U.S., It's why we're spending another week focused on what the government is doing at the White House, the Pentagon and Capitol Hill. President Trump this week announced mutual agreements with Canada and Mexico to close land borders for non-essential travel. He's promising the FDA will fast-track approval of potential therapies for COVID-19. And he is increasing the number of critical supplies hospitals say they need to handle a surge in patients. One way he's doing that is with a little-known presidential power, the Defense Production Act, first enacted in 1950 in response to the Korean War. So we will start there with the week's actions by the Trump administration and our White House correspondent, John Decker.
0: This is uh, a power that any president has, and what this power allows the president to do is to call upon private industry, uh, manufacturing plants, uh, to essentially change uh, their processes and instead of what they have been manufacturing, to manufacture items that are in much need across America during a national emergency. The president has already declared a national emergency associated with the coronavirus, and the president said that he has indeed invoked uh, this little-used presidential power to make certain that certain uh, items are, are available all across America, including, uh, the respirators, uh, the masks that, uh, is ne- that are necessary for healthcare professionals to test for the coronavirus. Uh, this would be, make it more readily available all across the, the country at hospitals all across the country, Jared.
3: It seems like there's been a, a, some confusion though, because as you point out, this is a power that, that gives the president the authority to basically direct private industry to do this. He has said that he's not had to do that, that this has sort of been volunteer by by these private companies?
0: Well, we know that one automaker, I believe it's Ford, has offered up uh, some of its plants to manufacture ventilators because uh, all three uh, U.S. automakers have essentially shut down their assembly plants. And so... Uh, Ford and the president in one of his briefings also mentioned GM, they have said that they can turn some of these assembly plants into plants they could manufacture, uh, ventilators, for instance. But there's some confusion as to whether or not by the president invoking this little-use law, he's actually directed any particular manufacturing facility in the country to do something like manufacture uh, the masks uh, that are necessary when you treat a coronavirus um, individual, a person who has coronavirus or potentially has coronavirus, or for medical workers across the country that are working alongside each other and don't want to carry or uh, acquire, I should say, this disease.
3: There also seems to be and we talked about this a little bit last week, but uh, I want to follow up because it sort of has been a theme in the president announcing something or rolling something out or or saying that we're going to have X number of, of Y equipment by this time, only to find out later that the timeline may be a little bit longer than the president had hoped or the president had announced. Has that been happening much this week with these daily briefings?
0: Well, it has happened in terms of uh, certain items that, that are necessary, uh, certainly by healthcare professionals and hospitals across the country. So, you know, the president really at this point in time can't misspeak uh, in terms of talking about how many ventilators are now available and how many ventilators will soon be available. I think that the vice president in particular has tried to be extra careful in terms of what he says uh, during these coronavirus briefings that are now happening on a daily basis uh, in the White House press briefing room. Uh, I think the president is getting better at this, but certainly uh, as this uh, process sort of got underway of informing the public of what the federal government is doing. The president, uh, I, I think, sometimes, uh, sometimes has uh, misspoken in terms of what kind of products are now readily available and how much testing is readily available throughout all the states in our country.
3: There has also been a a lot of questions about the president's sort of tone this week, taking on maybe a more serious tone as it relates to the spread of of this virus. Is that something that you have seen uh, over the course of the last couple of weeks?
0: Well, I've certainly noticed it this week. Uh, This week in particular, I I was in the briefing room earlier this week. You know, we rotate uh, the radio pool does uh, access to uh, that one seat that the radio pool has in the briefing room. And the president uh, clearly has gotten a very a clear message from his healthcare professionals, his advisors that are on the coronavirus task force, like Dob- uh, Dr. Deborah Birx, like Dr. Anthony Fauci. They have made it very clear to the president that this is a national emergency. This is a health care crisis. And the president, uh, I, I think, for the most part, has reacted accordingly. And you notice a change in tone. He recognizes uh, with the numbers increasing in terms of cases throughout our country on a daily basis, the number of fatalities associated with coronavirus, uh, you know, ticking up. Uh, on a daily basis, this is a very serious problem that not only is he dealing with, but the rest of the country is dealing with every day.
3: Has he continued to be critical of the news media in these uh, daily Q&A sessions?
0: He has. uh, And, you know, there are some briefings where he doesn't. There are some briefings where he's actually complimented those in the briefing room. Uh, And there are some days where certain individuals from certain news organizations, for whatever reason, uh, get under his skin. Uh, I I noticed just the other day, uh, our our fellow colleague from Fox Business, Blake Berman, uh, asked a question that really grated on the president's nerves. So um, this is not a a regular occurrence, but it does happen, Jared, from uh, from time to time
3: and you're right i mean it, he he seems to be you know trying to answer questions in the way that he's comfortable a- answering questions which i think is pretty recognizable to those of us who have covered his campaign and his presidency while also yielding to uh the officials, to, to the experts there and, and trying to let them answer some of these more technical questions, which have been so, so important. That's been uh, fascinating to sort of see that that movement, uh, at least from from my vantage point outside of the briefing room. Curious about your uh, your takeaway inside the briefing room.
0: Well, that's what I've noticed. You know, the, the president uh, has deferred to the healthcare professionals. These are people that uh, I think no matter what you're Uh, political ideology whether you're on the left or whether you're on the right Uh, i think that most americans have come to respect the the judgment of dr burks and the judgment of anthony Fauci. but we've also seen times where the president uh right there on, on the same uh dais as dr Fauci, disagrees with dr Fauci, and that gets a lot of attention when you disagree with someone who is uh regarded as one of the world's foremost experts on infectious diseases
3: John Decker I appreciate the time as you point out there is a rotation of reporters that are in that briefing room as, as they try and socially distance each other avoid large crowds um, uh, it is a, a public service that you and your colleagues are doing uh, not everybody can work from home you've been a, a testament to that this week I appreciate your service and, and the time to discuss it this week
0: oh uh, thanks a lot Jared um, it's uh, it's my uh privilege uh, but i think it's also a duty that we have uh if we can do it and i'm fortunate that i can do it to report from the white house uh especially for our listeners our listeners who are depending on us uh to tell us the latest in regards to this health crisis that has affected every state in our country
2: Can the U.S. military help fight an invisible enemy? The Pentagon is deploying resources to help with the coronavirus outbreak, but officials say they're limited in what they can do. I'm Rachel Sutherland.
6: We are ready to
3: respond depending on the needs of the community and as ordered by the response network by the governors in every state.
2: The head of the National Guard, General Joseph Lingle, says thousands of service members are being activated to help with testing, facilities, and food but he cautioned against mobilizing on a federal level. There's been a lot of talk about setting up MASH-type units in hard-hit areas. Air Force Brigadier General Paul Friedrichs cautioned against overestimating the military's ability to care for sick civilians.
0: Our deployable hospitals range in size and range in capabilities and are very much focused and designed to take care of those in combat.
2: There's the same problem for Navy hospital ships which President Trump said would sail to the East and West Coast. The USNS Comfort and Mercy are not set up to treat coronavirus patients, but they can take in trauma patients from hospitals that are inundated with people suffering the worst of COVID-19. Plus, the Comfort Hospital ship is now undergoing repairs in Norfolk, Virginia, and may not be able to reach New York until sometime next month. Jennifer Griffin covers the Pentagon for Fox News. Well,
1: I think what's really interesting, Rachel, is the distinct tone change here at the Pentagon. Over the last two weeks. The Pentagon was one of the first places to institute, you know, briefings with six people, six feet between people. They had their chairs, you know, six feet apart. They started teleconferencing within the building uh, very early on before everyone, now everyone else seems to have caught up. But what is notable is that uh, there continue to be uh, Impressions left at the White House and elsewhere that the Defense Department can come in at kind of like the cavalry and save the day and so mm-hmm. what we've been what we have been trying to explain and what the senior leaders here at the Pentagon are trying to explain is that the the military, as it is configured right now, is not really configured to deal with infectious diseases, so those two hospital ships the u s n s comfort and u s n s mercy They uh, wanted to explain in the beginning when it when there was talk of deploying them to New York and to Seattle that those are not set up for infectious disease bunking, if you will, they can take, they have 750 beds each, and they can take a little bit of the pressure off of local hospitals in terms of trauma patients. So those will be deploying, but they will not be in position until mid-April. It takes mm. time. And the other thing that the National Guard, as well as the Defense Secretary, have tried to explain is that if you mobilize the Federal National Guard, meaning the 450,000 members of the Guard and Reserve who are out there uh, in all 50 states, uh, you will be taking uh, a key tool away from the state governors because that will fall under federal jurisdiction. They won't be able to deploy them as best as they need them. And because of the the longstanding Posse comitatus law, you would not be able to use them for law enforcement. So they are really encouraging the president to keep the National Guard duties under state governors. And, I, and so far, that seems to be what is happening. You have about 4,000 National Guardsmen uh, deployed to... 31 states. Uh, I expect that that will rise to all 54 states and and territories in the coming days. Uh, We were told by the head of the National Guard, General Joseph Langell, that the number will uh, easily hit uh, uh, 10,000, if not more, in the coming days. Mm. Uh, So they are doubling by the day the way in which they help. But the problem also, General Langell explained to us, if you mobilize all 450,000 National Guard right now, a, you're taking them out of their civilian jobs. So, so many of them work in the medical sector. They may be nurses, doctors, and others. You take them away from those civilian hospitals, and you'll actually be doing more mm. damage than good. So you, they have to ramp up in an appropriate manner, and that's why you're seeing it happening the way the way that it is. Right. That being said, the numbers uh, of those uh, in the military being diagnosed and uh, as positive with COVID-19 is increasing by the day. And we do have those figures.
2: Right. So where does it stand now? And also I wanted to ask you about the idea of setting up the sort of mobile MASH-like units. I was hearing one military official saying that those units, those pop-up units, really aren't designed for infectious diseases. Like you were mentioning about the ships, they're designed for combat and trauma.
1: That's exactly right. I think what more likely you'll see is maybe National Guard helping with pre-screening of those who think they have COVID or testing in those mobile kind of uh, tents that might pop up in all the Walmart uh, Uh, parking lots or other parking lots around the country. Uh, I think that's more likely. But the idea that mass hospital uh, units are going to be deployed and save the day, that is just not, again, the way they're set up. They can help relieve some of the pressure on the local hospitals in terms of trauma issues, people with broken bones, those kind of issues. Uh, But as uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo said, he needs 50,000 hospital beds almost immediately. The USNS Comfort, which is, will be in uh, the New York Harbor by mid-April, has about 750 beds. So they're going to now be looking at hotels and at dorm rooms on college campuses to turn those into infirmaries. That's where the Army Corps of Engineers might be able to come in. But again, there's a little bit of a misunderstanding of what the US Army Corps of em- Engineers can do. They are a contracting agency they're good at logistics they do not build hospitals or convert buildings into hospitals but they do they are good at finding the local private contractors who can do that and that's why the head of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers went to meet with Governor Andrew Cuomo earlier this week.
2: How about the numbers of coronavirus positive service members I know they keep fluctuating and changing Uh, where do they stand right now?
1: Well, right now we have 67 confirmed U.S. military active duty cases um, as of this morning. Three have recovered, we're told, so that's good news. 15 civilian employees, 26 dependents, and 16 contractors. Remember, there has not been wide-scale testing across the military as of yet. We did hear from the head of... US Army Command in Europe, uh, US European Command, excuse me, General Todd Walters, and he said he has 35 cases of active duty positive COVID 19 cases in Europe alone. That's more than half of the cases for the US military right now. So, Europe is still uh, is considered the hotbed, the central focus right now. But you also have to remember the U.S. Navy is particularly vulnerable with its warships. They have been in and out of uh, ports all over the world in the last few weeks. And those warships, once you're on board, they are no different than the civilian cruise ships. And we just got reports last night of the first Navy SEALs who have tested positive hmm. for the disease.
2: Right. What about the stop movement order on military? Military transfers. I was hearing from um, some sources that uh, military families were in the middle of a move to a new duty station, and then they're, they're getting there, they're supposed to unpack. Now it's just been thrown into chaos. Uh, what's being done to help with these, these families who are trying to move or are trying to change duty stations, and yet the order comes down in the middle of everything?
1: That's right. Well, the U.S. military was way ahead of the curve in terms of halting domestic travel, unnecessary uh, international travel. They shut that down uh, really about two weeks ago, and that included halting the the moves of anybody who was being restationed somewhere else. Some of those families who were in the middle of the moves, they are going to get, uh, I think, some relief from the, the moving companies and any p- expenses that go along with that. The military has put out uh, orders, uh, directives to that effect. Uh, but really, I think one of the best things the U.S. military has done, and the civilian world will be following suit, is to halt domestic travel, halt everything but uh, urgent travel even within cities, and certainly uh, shutting down international travel.
2: Also, there's some reports of service members complaining of draconian measures as far as quarantines are concerned. What are you hearing about that?
1: Well, that was only in one location. That was out at Fort Bliss in um, uh, in Texas, El Paso, Texas, and those were uh, members of the military who had re- had, had been brought home after serving overseas, and out of an abundance of caution, the Fort Bliss uh, commander had put them into pretty draconian, as you mentioned, what they're describing as draconian quarantine situation for the next two weeks to see if anybody is uh, is showing signs of the illness. Uh, they were three to a room, small rooms. Many of them said, you know, at least uh, civilians were being given, you know, uh, there are right now about 1,500 civilians who are housed on four U.S. military bases from those cruise ships and from uh, China when they were uh, brought back to the United States. They're being given single rooms and single bathrooms. Uh, the U- But what we did hear from the top spokesman here at the Pentagon is that Uh, he made the defense secretary aware of this and they admit they could do better. So uh, the situation at Fort Bliss, they are taking a look at and figuring out how they can uh, have slightly less draconian quarantines. But I think it is extremely smart. Any U.S. service members who've been overseas uh, in recent weeks really do need to self-isolate and those commanders have been given the uh, authorization to, to do what they need to do on their bases to keep the force safe. And in fact, in fact, if you look at what uh, General Abrams did out in South Korea, he took very, very quick action to isolate his um, and, and basically kind of self-quarantine his force over in South Korea, and they have, by and large, uh, avoided the kind of infection rates that you would have expected to see since they were out there on the front lines in a country that was very hard hit by, uh, by the virus in Asia.
2: A couple more things. We're understanding that uh, military officials are saying that American troops will be leaving Iraq in the middle of this, uh, coming home. Um, So how is that going to uh, work out? Will they need to quarantine? Is there any special precautions that the uh, Pentagon is taking in this situation?
1: I think anybody returning from overseas will be uh, – self isolating or quarantined if you will it may not be a but the commander will have the the right to do that and it will be frankly it is in keeping with CDC guidelines right now Uh, In terms of the numbers coming out of Iraq, we're told that it's in the hundreds right now. You know, you still have a a large number of people staying in Iraq. So U.S. forces are not pulling out of Iraq altogether. But they are reconfiguring for two reasons, not only for the coronavirus, but also because you've seen those rockets that were fired at bases like Camp Taji. Uh, It's very hard for the U.S. military to defend those small outposts and bases. And so they are reconfiguring the force to a defensive position. Because there is still grave concern by the U.S. CENTCOM commander that Iran will try to test the United States at a moment when they are facing severe, severe uh, coronavirus death tolls in Iran. Um, They believe the U.S. Central Command believes that there are even top Iranian officials who have died, the death rate, and they're seeing from satellite photos large um, mass graves Mm. in Iran. So they are worried that Iran will try and test the U.S. military at this time. So they're just, out of an abundance of caution, repositioning some of the forces there to protect them, both from the virus as well as from Iran.
2: And on a sad note, we're understanding that military burial services are going to be limited to 10 people. I guess the option is that families can bury their loved ones and then come back for a larger graveside service. And uh, those uh, uh, honor guards will be in short supply as well. So it's just really a tough time, not only for the nation, but the U.S. Armed Forces as well.
1: Absolutely, Rachel. But they're taking very, very strict measures, and I think it will pay off in the end.
3: Concerns of coronavirus are not just about public health. Lawmakers are also increasingly worried of a cataclysmic event to the economy as the stock market sheds years of gain. And employers are facing uncertainty with entire population centers essentially shut down. It's leading to a familiar, though never welcomed word on Capitol Hill... Stimulus, A quick injection of cash to prevent economic catastrophe. Congress has done it before in the aftermath of 9-11, the banking collapse of 2008, and the Great Recession that followed. This, however, is different. An economic downturn created by a global health crisis that is both difficult to predict in lethality in length. Senate Republican leaders want to vote on a measure likely to include direct payments to Americans, loans for small businesses, and tax deferments for large sectors of the economy, a vote that could come as soon as Monday, a remarkably quick turnaround. Fox News congressional correspondent Chad Pergrams is all told that remedy will top one trillion dollars.
6: Probably a little bit more than that. And keep in mind that they don't really have scoring on this because there's no coronavirus model that exists. So we don't really know the cost of everything. And here's the other thing. Uh, John Cornyn, Republican senator from Texas, said yesterday uh, that he said what, fe- what he fears is that this is not the, ne- the only thing they're going to have to do. And Mitch McConnell, the Senate majority leader, intimated as much uh, on the floor. So even though this is about a million, tr- uh, two, Uh, They're probably going to do a lot more. And here's the other thing that people should know. It's not $1.2 trillion of just brand new spending. A lot of this money is our tax breaks and things. So it's kind of a cumulative figure there, Jared. Here's the other thing to watch for. Mitch McConnell and others have noted that they're starting the annual appropriations process here on Capitol Hill. This is where they're actually, you know, spending money for the 12 uh, annual spending bills which run the federal government. And there will be undoubtedly lots of extra money in that for HHS CDC the military uh, VA you name it uh, to you know you know to to respond to this down the road those bills would be due by the thirtieth of September
3: you know we are seeing lawmakers move with an urgency that is unique um, can you put this in, in context you look I, I mean one in a couple of ways when you look at this total about one point two trillion dollars or so that's the largest stimulus legislation we've ever seen.
6: Right. And, and and here's the severity of this. So I was talking to a senior Republican source, uh, you know, on Thursday night about what is next. And they said, we need to move this by Monday. And I said, OK, so you have it informed by Monday. They said, we need this moved by Monday. And they emphasized it precisely like that. And Jared, this is very stark and this is very grim, but it's reminiscent of something that happened in the middle of September 2008. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi called the then Treasury Secretary Hank Paulson to get a sense of where the markets were going and and where the economy was going. And he implored her to come to Capitol Hill that night and said, we have to meet now or we're not going to have an economy by Monday. I was told That if they don't move this lickety split, get it through the Senate Monday, maybe even the House Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, probably at the absolute latest here, that that's what they're up against. The markets will not respond favorably. They are looking, and I'm going to speak in very frank terms here, something that could be cataclysmic if they do not respond. That's why that was emphasized to me by Monday, and you could hear it in the source's voice, the tension, Jared.
3: That's going to have to be a hard sell. I mean, you look at some of these uh, proposals within this broader bill, Chad, and I mean, listen, we're, we're talking about direct payments to individuals. I have talked to Republicans who don't love that idea. You were talking about massive tax breaks and other incentives for big companies, airlines. A lot of Democrats don't like that. How difficult is this going to be?
6: It's hard. I mean, it's always hard. And any time they do something really big like this, there's always buyers or mores down the road. Look at the, you know how they passed the resolution to uh, fight the war on terrorism after 9-11, go into Afghanistan. Here we are nearly 20 years later, and there's a lot of reservations that that is still being used. You know, just this week, they approved a reauthorization, a temporary one of of FISA, that was part of the Patriot Act, which was approved just a few days after 9/11. About a month later, October of 2001, and there are major problems with that program. So when you do these big things fast, uh, you know people are very leery, uh, and that's why there's buyer's remorse. Is
3: that like going to be a lot of time to read the bill.
6: Well, you know, we even saw that uh, this past week. You know, they they rushed a bill, the Phase Two bill through the House of Representatives that, you know, the vote started around 1230 and ended around 1251 on Saturday morning.
3: The timeline is remarkable. I want to finish on this point because it's related to it. Uh, Over the last few weeks, you and I and our colleagues in the press corps have been asking about the, the potential of remote voting. Leadership, senior leadership has sort of poo-pooed it. This week, two members of the House of Representatives, a Republican and a Democrat, both announced positive tests of COVID-19. Both of these members were on the floor of the House of Representatives during that early morning Saturday vote that you talked about. They have a lot of interaction with their colleagues, many of whom are now in quarantine or self-isolation to make sure that they don't get sick, that they're not spreading this this uh, virus. Has the mood changed on finding a way for members, many of whom are elderly, not to have to get on airplanes and fly across the country and vote in person?
6: You're certainly going to have some absences, but the short answer is no. And as of about a week and a half ago, the House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer said that he was opposed, as was House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, to any concept of remote voting. I mean, the word Congress, by definition, means coming together. But Steny Hoyer changed his tune this past week. He said, quote, the House will adjust our voting procedures in order to follow the CDC's recommendations. We will be discussing all options. Now, here's the problem. You have to approve both the House and Senate, another resolution uh, to do this. You know, they make the rules on their own in each body. That's under the, you know, the Constitution. So even if the House were to approve remote voting, maybe the Senate wouldn't. And Roy Blunt, Republican senator from Missouri, who's the chair of the Rules Committee, seemed very skeptical of that. Uh, this is something that they might look at probably for the next crisis, maybe reserve it for the big stuff like Pandemics, or or, 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 God forbid, nuclear war or something like that, where you have trouble getting to Washington. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's surprising that they don't have some sort of option. Again, you know, almost two decades after 9-11, something that would kick in. Now, granted, if you think about the technology, the encryption, the way they could do this remotely, I mean, that's changed by leaps and bounds over the past two decades. Uh, It's something that Rob Portman, Republican senator from Ohio, and Dick Durbin from Illinois, the Democratic whip, uh, they have a resolution to do that. But they're going to have to bring everybody together unless, and this is what happened on that fix-it bill in the House of Representatives, they did it by unanimous consent. And that's where Louis Gohmert was in the chamber and he could have objected to the whole thing. You know, there were 40 uh, you know uh, votes against this bill in the House of representatives the the, the Saturday morning vote uh, there were eight Republican nos on phase two, and so you know Senators they and, and House members frankly, the only thing you 're guaranteed to do around here is to vote uh, you 're not guaranteed the right to have a bill, an amendment to sit on a committee, but the only thing you 're guaranteed to do is have a vote, and so they treasure that, but I think that that might be something that they will look at more seriously because again. You know, we responded, quote unquote, to 9-11. They put in certain, uh, you know, provisions in the House and Senate, safety provisions to address, uh, you know, a terrorism attack. Uh, They had not quite anticipated this where, you you know, it's a hazard to actually bring people together.
3: So let's dive a little bit deeper with two House members, a Republican and a Democrat, to highlight the challenge in passing something like this. Phase two of the stimulus passed both the House and Senate with bipartisan support and the backing of the White House. That bill provides paid sick leave for workers who fall ill or need time out of the office. It expands unemployment and nutrition benefits. Arizona Republican Andy Biggs voted no. Here's why.
7: I mean, the free testing, I think people were content with the free testing, and they want to make sure people have access to the medical supplies that they need immediately. But when you start closing businesses, which is what you're doing, the way they structure this is not going to have the immediate impact that you want. I mean, what you're talking about is you want an immediate impact. But what you've done is if you're a business under 500, you're bearing the burden. They exempted. Businesses over 500. Explain that one to me. You can't explain that to me. We bailed out the financial services industry 10 years ago. What you could do is you could say, in exchange for um, a couple of technical regulations, mark-to-market, uh, need to remove that, remove the CECL uh, program, uh, that would give them uh, the financial institutions some stability and, and, and uh, clarity now. But you would also, what you would also do is say, look, 90 days, you're going to protect the mortgage mortgagees so they don't get foreclosed on. You're going to protect people so they don't get their cars um, repossessed. I mean, those are those are things that uh, I gave to the president last week that others are working on. We continue to work on them uh, for legislatively as well. Those are things you would have that have a very similar impact to what you're talking about, where people wouldn't have to be worried about um, cars or car payments, wouldn't have to be worried about their their uh, their house famous those types of things that provides an immediate influx
3: michigan democrat elissa slotkin voted yes on phase two but has concerns about a larger so-called bailout for corporations
4: you know, we have gone through a similar type stimulus requirement back in 2008 right we did have these conversations and you can learn a lot from what we did then and try to help that guide how we move forward on this package I know that a bunch of lawmakers are getting on a call this week, myself included, to talk to experts, people who were in charge and living through that 2008 experience. Going to go th- they're going to go through the lessons learned, and then we're going to come up with our sort of suggestions on what should be in this big economic recovery package. The big thing for me is hearing from my district. So we've already put out um, a new uh, like address on the web where our constituents, especially our business leaders, can write to us and say, here's what really needs to be in that economic package. I need to hear from my district on what they need, in addition to folks who lived through the 2008 recovery package.
3: Have you given thought to a a temporary uh, cut to the payroll taxes, as President Trump has suggested?
4: You know, I know that he floated that. To be honest with you, a lot of the business leaders that I really take my cues from did not think that that was the most urgent need. Um, But those are the kinds of things that are absolutely on the table. And I'm not going to rule out anything. Um, I just think we need to be prudent. We need to be thoughtful. And we need to not just chuck, you know, sort of money at the problem. We need to have a plan. And then it has to be negotiated. And I know, based on watching the back and forth between Secretary of the Treasury Mnuchin um, and Speaker Pelosi, you know, that took a good three days of just almost shuttle diplomacy, phone calls and visits Um, So we know that this is going to be a big debate. Um, That's a healthy debate. We should have that debate. But what I want to do is get started. And that, for me, starts with hearing from my district.
3: Congresswoman, I appreciate the time in these uh, uncertain times to to answer these questions. Stay safe and uh, the best to you and your uh, constituents.
4: You as well. Take care now.
3: With social distancing, working from home, quarantines, even curfews and lockdowns, not to mention juggling a brand new way of living with family obligations, the kids, elder care and the like, it's easy to forget there is still a presidential election in less than nine months. Tuesday, three more states held presidential primaries, Florida, Illinois and Arizona. The former vice president, Joe Biden, won them all, adding to a delegate total that is becoming nearly out of reach for Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders. Biden also picked up a couple more endorsements from former rivals. Hawaii Congresswoman Tulsi Gabbard suspended her longshot campaign and immediately offered her full support to Biden. And New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand has endorsed Biden. So, is this really over? A Democratic field that was once historically large, perhaps narrowed to one well before the summer convention as Sanders falls further behind in the delegate tally? Fox News Radio's political analyst Josh Krossauer, join me for our Tuesday night coverage. And is back to discuss what happens next. First of all, we'll let our listeners know, as we have been doing now for uh, the last uh, week or a little bit more than a week now, using uh, some remote technology here to podcast and broadcast as well as we did on election night, Tuesday night. So if you hear birds chirping, uh, it's because, Josh, you're uh, on your patio, right?
5: I am social distancing on the patio here in the in the home home office here in Virginia. So yeah, we are in unprecedented times, and that calls for uh, an, an unprecedented uh, measures. Hashtag working from home.
3: Okay, um, now that that's complete, let's talk about uh, a few things, and we'll start, I suppose, with where we should if you know, we didn't have a lot of other things going on, which is uh, the state of play in the Democratic primary. Tulsi Gabbard, by the way, uh, suspended her campaign uh, this week and endorsed uh, Joe Biden, which I found very interesting. And I want to talk about that, Josh. But let's start with Tuesday night's uh, slate of primaries, three states holding contests since Ohio uh, delayed their in-person voting. And it was a clean sweep for Joe Biden. What does that tell us now about this race?
5: Well, the race is, is all but over, and uh, in Florida, Biden won every county in the state. Uh, the the margin that that Biden defeated Bernie Sanders in Illinois and Florida, uh, and also in Arizona, are, are 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 as significant as we've seen for for any front runner at this point in time in a campaign. So you now, the real question is, when does Bernie Sanders? Uh, get out of the race, or does he, given the unique circumstances of the campaign right now? But, you know, th- this is a uh, you look at the exit polls, you look at the data behind Joe Biden's victory, and he's dominating among almost every group of voters, with the one exception of, of younger voters, very young voters who still are on the, the, the side of Sanders. But uh, this, if it was any other campaign, if it was any other candidate, you would see Joe Biden as the as the nominee of the party, and, and the whole party would be rallying behind him, as they are, except for Bernie Sanders, in, in supporting his candidacy.
3: Now, Sanders' uh, campaign has said, listen, the senator is focused on the coronavirus, on this uh, stimulus package that is working its way through Congress. That
5: seems to be what, what a senator ought be doing, right? It is. Uh, it helps not to have the distraction of of a, of a still being a, an active presidential candidate, but you know he has uh, been back in the Senate trying to deal with a legislative response. Um, you know, it, it is unusual because I think the Sanders team believes that if they stay in the race, even though there aren't any primaries scheduled for the next few weeks, they can put some pressure on on Joe Biden to maybe move his platform to the left, maybe adopt some of the Sanders positions when it comes to expanding uh, health uh, access, health care insurance for more voters. Uh, but, you know, usually, usually when a nominee is, is, is the presumptive, when a nominee is, is dominating as much as Joe Biden is, he's the presumptive nominee, usually you pivot to the middle when it comes to a general election. You know, the Bernie folks seem to be holding out hope that Biden is going to pivot to the left in in order to to secure the nomination. So in some ways
3: he has. I mean, we saw just before the debate uh, on Sunday night, uh, Joe Biden come out in support of tuition free uh, public college for those under a certain income level. We saw him embrace an Elizabeth Warren position on bankruptcy and foreclosures. That is a pivot to the left, isn't it?
5: It it is unusual and it is an attempt to try to get Sanders to agree to get out of the race that give maybe a a sop to Sanders and and hope that he can unite the party and get his supporters to to back Joe Biden. But um, it doesn't seem like Sanders is following suit. And since we haven't heard from him uh you know since, since we haven't heard from his campaign since he hasn't announced that he's, he's going to be stepping out of the race we've got to assume that he's he's in this at least for the foreseeable future does these positions that Joe Biden is now uh moved towards
3: as we talked about the uh, tuition free uh universities at least for for families under a certain income level and this Elizabeth Warren uh banking position uh does that make biden more or less vulnerable uh in a general election
5: you know typically moving to the left moving to towards uh the, the 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 outside the mainstream is is a is a curious political move i i will say though that at a time of great economic anxiety great economic uncertainty the, the likelihood that we're already in a recession Uh, The the moves to make sure working class voters, uh, voters without the same means, uh, you know, voters who don't have great wealth are are covered, are protected, feel secure. Um, That might be a more politically defensible move just given the unusual, unprecedented times we're in. Um, You know, there is a point of view that economic populism sells in the Midwest, sells among working class voters that defected to President Trump in the 2016 election. Uh, and I think that may be governing some of the Biden campaign's thinking about pivoting a little bit leftward uh, on on the bankruptcy issue with with Warren on the on the public tuition free free tuition issue for some some Americans, uh, which Bernie has talked about. You know, there is a, a, a we're we're already seeing the Trump White House, you know, offer plans that that spend you know billions if not trillions of dollars to help save the economy. Uh, so perhaps positions. That Bernie has held in terms of helping the working class, helping the less fortunate voters financially, maybe those those do not are not as politically unpopular as they would be under normal circumstances.
3: That's a fair point. We're seeing the Republican led Senate move very swiftly on a uh, very uh, costly economic stimulus plan. And I think for those who covered Congress uh, at the first part of the last decade may may have a little bit of whiplash if you were to fast forward uh, to where we are today. Let's finish, uh, uh, Josh, with uh, Tulsi Gabbard. Um, she uh, only got, uh, I think, one or two delegates from uh, the caucus in American Samoa. So not surprising, I think, that, that she is ending her campaign I was surprised, and I'd like to get your take on her immediate endorsement of the former vice president.
5: You know, it, it shows, number one, that she's not going to be running as a third party candidate, which was which was a worry that a lot of Democrats had. Uh, and, and frankly, the fact that she her main message in the campaign was to rail against endless war, was to criticize uh, Democrats who voted for the Iraq war and. Uh, and Biden was one of those. One was one of those senators in 2003 who, who who voted for the Iraq War. So you would think that they're on ideological opposites when it comes to foreign policy. So it is an encouraging sign that even someone who disagrees with Joe Biden on such a on such a big issue for her is actually endorsing his campaign. And I think most most significantly for Democrats, the fact you. One less candidate that could peel support from Biden as a third party, a possible third party, a challenger. That that worry is now out the window. The party is uniting, it, and even Tulsi Gabbard is on board.
3: Well, that in I mean, so much of her campaign was um, criticizing the Democratic establishment, very critical of uh, the thresholds to get on the debate stage. At, at one point, she filed a lawsuit against Hillary Clinton.
5: Yeah, I mean, she wasn't if Hillary. I mean, Hillary Clinton and her have a famous feud. And, 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 and there is a personal side to Joe Biden, Jared, that I think is bringing uh, some of his rivals to his side quicker than it may be. Or if it was another frontrunner in the same position. Um, I mean Gabbard, even though she criticized you know Kamala Harris most significantly on the debate stage earlier in the campaign, he never really went after Joe Biden that aggressively. And I think it's because of the relationship that Joe Biden has with a lot of Democrats on Capitol Hill and uh, it, it's an acknowledgement that even though they may have ideological differences, uh, they're, they're willing to put their, their, their those grievances apart put those grievances aside to, to unite in, in preparation for a general election.
3: All right. uh, Next uh, primary, as you point out, is not for another three weeks, uh, at least. We'll see how uh, states make these uh, decisions moving forward as we try and uh, socially distance ourselves to flatten the curve. Uh, I appreciate you uh, taking the time again, Josh. uh, Hopefully, we'll uh, spend some time in studio together uh, soon. Stay safe, stay healthy. Thanks, Jared. That will do it for the From Washington podcast this week, a week that I know has been challenging for so many, lives disrupted. It's been a challenge for those of us in the news business, too. I've split my time working from home and the Capitol, a decision that has resulted in a bit of internal wrestling, weighing legitimate public health concerns with a responsibility to you, the listener, to hear directly from lawmakers on the verge of a trillion-dollar economic stimulus Responding to a situation unlike one most of us could have predicted. It would not have been possible without cooperation from the press corps in general. On Capitol Hill and at the White House and elsewhere, networks and reporters have quickly found ways to cooperate to both limit exposure and risk while also ensuring accountability from the government you elected. I'm grateful for that teamwork and proud to call myself a member of that team. And we will continue to do it next week and as long as it takes to make sure you have the information you need to make the best choices for yourself and your family. I hope you will continue to trust us with that responsibility. Another big thank you to our whole team at Fox News Radio, most of whom you never hear from working behind the scenes and creatively solving problems of remote broadcasting, podcasting and interviewing. I could not sound so confident without their tireless work. Next week, we will continue to spend a lot of time examining the government's response to the coronavirus pandemic and how a stimulus bill likely to top a trillion dollars will impact you. Until then, be safe, be healthy and be wise. I'm Jared Halpern from Washington.